0: You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been in here for a little while, so you're familiar with the text, so we'll forego that. uh, I want to start off by a quote from uh, Pastor John MacArthur. He says, The return of Jesus Christ, sad to say, seems to be a subject treated with pretty much indifference in the evangelical world today. And yet, it is not only a cardinal truth of Christianity, but it is essentially the ultimate truth of Christianity. Because everything is moving toward our Lord's return. Amen? Amen. 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 I mean, I don't think we could argue with that. And uh, it seems that everybody, a lot of times, is focused on everything else having to do with Christ. But they don't like to talk about his return because it can be kind of controversial with some people. But uh, we don't believe it's controversial at all. We believe the Bible is crystal clear on what the future holds and what our hope is. And that's what we've been looking at through our uh, texts of, of Scripture. We don't need to live in this world worrying about what is going to happen to the planet, global warming or climate change or any, anything else, uh, or even to the nations, or to the political climate or the economic climate, any, anything having to do with that, because the final chapter of human history, guess what? It's already been written in the scriptures. It's already been recorded for us. And we know that everything is going to happen according to the Lord's schedule, not our own. And uh, whether it makes sense to us or not, God is sovereign, amen. And ultimately, he will uh, vindicate the end of the story as it's written in history for us. And we call that, when we look forward to the Lord's coming, we call it the what? The blessed hope, right? We look forward to the blessed hope of the coming of Christ. We're waiting the return of our Lord and Savior because, guess what? The Messiah has already come. He's already accomplished his work here on earth. And He paid the price for our sins, as we recognize even today with Communion Sunday. So we're not looking for another Savior. We're not looking for another Deliverer. We're not looking for a Redeemer. We're not looking for someone who will make everything right. We already know who that person is. And the one Deliverer, Jesus Christ, is going to come back, and he's going to take us, the church, to be with him. Then he will unfold judgment on the ungodly, establish a glorious kingdom, promise to the saints, and then he will go into, then after that, all that happens, we will go into the new heaven and the new earth, and we will be with the Lord forevermore. Um, that's what the Bible promises us as believer, as believers. And so today we want to kind of continue in our, our study here of God's prophetic timetable of what will happen and, and the occasion of our Lord. Uh, being in the upper room, if you turn over to uh, John, just a couple pages to the left, John in your Bibles, John chapter 14, we hear this read a lot, but sometimes we don't understand the context of it. This is our Lord being in the upper room with his disciples, and it's a time basically thir- chapter 13 through 14, or 16, and he already told them the really sad news that he's going to be leaving them. And they didn't really understand what he was talking about. He was going to go away. And they thought, wait a minute. No, we've left everything to follow you. You're not going anywhere, pal. Wait, you're not popping out of here early and leaving us here. And, and this was crushing to them as his followers. It was heartbreaking to them. Because they had left everything for him. You know? It's kind of like somebody talking in you and going on a vacation with you. And... You know, you don't want to go, but yeah, okay, I'll go, I'll go. And then you get on the vacation and they leave early. (laughs) You know, it'd be like, hey, wait a minute. I didn't, you know, you you made me do this in the first place. Um, They could not imagine life without their Lord. But that's what was going to face them. He was leaving. And so in chapter 14, he kind of addresses that with them. Uh, Their hearts were broken. And he's, he's saying to them, you know, he's up to this point. He's telling them, look, I'm going to send somebody else. You're not going to be by yourself. Praise the Lord for that, right? I mean, even though Jesus isn't here with us, the spirit of Jesus is, the Holy Spirit. He resides within all believers. If you don't have the spirit of God residing within you, you're not a believer of Christ, so we, we need to understand that first and foremost. So he said, hey, I'm going to send somebody that's going to take care of you. I'm going to send you a comforter, someone to come alongside you. He's going to live in you, and it's going to be the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And um, he will, he's in me, and he'll be in you is, is what he works up to here. And we know from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in all believers. And from that day on, that's what happens when you come to Christ. You're indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. Even though you still live in a sinful body, a body of flesh. Hillary shared that this morning in our devotion of worship uh, in Romans 7. And and we talked about that. But but it's important to understand that even though we live in a a carnal body, a fleshly body, guess what? We have the Holy Spirit to help us deal with it. And uh, the Holy Spirit of God has been in every believer ever since then. He is the Spirit of Christ. Um, and so, with the coming of the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers, uh, they're kind of concerned that Jesus is leaving here. They don't really understand. In the, in the upper room discourse, he promises the disciples that even though His absence, somebody's going to be with you, but even at that, they were still troubled. And look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 14 of John. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Why did he say that? Because he knew they were. (laughs) He knew they were. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he begins to tell them what the plan is. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. You know, we, we sing that song once in a while. I got a mansion just over the hills. It's really a room. Okay. And it's a room in God's mansion is what it is. And so if you think you're going to be up there in heaven, off by yourself, in your little mansion, all by yourself, finally free of all the church people, guess what? They're going to be right down the hall. They're going to be in the room next door. So that's why we have to get used to living together now, right? I mean, as far as is understanding who the church is and, and getting along and 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 treating other, each other respectfully and everything, because we're all going to be in one house up there. And then he says in verse 3, he says, and if I go and I prepare a place for you, what would be the purpose of Jesus going to heaven and preparing a place for you? He's saying, if I'm not going to come and take you there, it doesn't make any sense. It'd be like if I said, hey, I'm going to build you a brand new house in uh, Death Valley, but, you know, you're never going to go there. (laughs) Um, It'd be kind of crazy. Well, he says, I'm going to heaven, not Death Valley. (laughs) I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he says, I will come again and take you to myself. The emphasis in the original language is very clear here. It's Christ himself who will come again. And he says he will take us with him to be with him that where I am, verse 3, you may be also. Where is Christ? Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Christ is in glory. He's been there since the ascension. So the next time you see, hear somebody say, oh, I saw Jesus the other day down on Broadway. No, no, you didn't. He's in heaven. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says, hey, how do we know? But the point here is that he didn't want them to be troubled He wanted them to know that he's coming back for them. And what we see over in in 1 Thessalonians is a fulfillment of that promise. The Lord always keeps his promises. And so the next event on God's prophetic timetable is that he's going to come back for his church and take his own, the elect, and take them to glory. And uh, this isn't some fanciful story. This is something that the Bible records in First Thessalonians chapter 4 as something that's very factual. It's very real. Our Lord will return. He will return for his people, the church, and he will take them to be uh, in heaven in a place where he has been preparing for them. And then he will also return to judge Satan, judge the world, Judge the unholy angels, judge the ungodly of the world. He will return to execute all who are evil, the Bible says. And he will return to establish a kingdom of righteousness. And he will rule on this world for a thousand years. You say, well, you think it's really a thousand years? Yes, I believe the Bible. I take the Bible literally. As, G- as Revelation makes clear, that's what it says. He, he, he will then... Finally, at the end of that thousand-year judgment, there will be a rebellion. And uh, he will squash that, and then we will all be in eternity. Uh, During that whole process, he will destroy the universe as we know it, this earth. That's why I'm not really concerned too much about the grass and the trees and all that stuff, because it's it's all going to be gone. It's going to get so bad, he's going to have to recreate the whole thing. So there's no preserving what we have. We want to be good stewards of it, mind you, while we live here, but at the same time, we're not going to preserve it. So the whole climate agenda is really uh, at odds with what the Bible says. And so we come down, and, and the we have this, this catching away. It says there in verse 13, he says, we don't want you to be in Thessalonians chapter 4, we don't want you to be uninformed brothers. We talked about this last week, about those who are asleep. This isn't soul sleep. It's those who are die, have died. Those Christians who are, have died. The, the Bible refers to Christians who die as being asleep because it's not a permanent state. One day you will be raised, the Bible says. And that's why he ends verse 3 there, that you may not grieve as others who do not have any hope. Have you ever thought about people at a funeral who don't know Christ? I mean, what hope is there? It's a miserable thing to go to a funeral where there's no gospel, there's no understanding of God, there's no understanding of Christ, there's no understanding of forgiveness. I mean, what is there? There's no hope. They don't believe anything. It's sad. And so it's important that we understand that as Christians, we do have hope. We have hope that Christ will return for us. And this is what he says in verse 14. For since we believe, and these are the three pillars, you might say, of this return of Christ, the rapture of the church, that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, I put there a little chart I think you have in your outline, and there's a difference between what we refer to as the rapture, okay, and the second coming of Christ. The rapture and the second coming of Christ. Uh, there's, an important, there's important differences between these two. We, uh, the word uh, rapture means a catching away, a snatching away, and we'll discuss that a little bit, but I just want to read through these differences because it's important that you understand this. Sometimes the Bible's referring to the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, when he actually comes to physically to earth. But here in 1 Thessalonians, in our text this morning, he's referring to what I would believe is the catching away of the church. And so I put here, number one, at the rapture, believers must meet the Lord in the air. That's what it says in verse 17. It says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, who's them, the dead in Christ. They went first. One commentator says it's because they were six feet below us. They were already buried, they were dead, so they needed a little head start. So the dead in Christ rise first, and then we, who are still alive, meet them in the clouds, it says, that's not real, this is a joke, um, in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then it's important, he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. So at the rapture, the church believers are caught up, they're snatched away at the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. The second coming, point number two, occurs after the great and tri- uh, terrible tribulation, seven-year tribulation here on earth, three and a half years, and then three and a half years of really, really bad stuff. And this is the understanding of a pre-trib theology, that God snatches us away before All that hell breaks loose here on earth. All the judgment, all the... Because we're not under God's judgment because of Calvary. And so we believe we will be spared from that. There's people that believe, no, you have to go through that as believers. I choose to maybe take the easy way out, but whatever. I think that's what Scripture teaches. You know, if I'm still here after the tribulation begins, then I guess I'll have to rethink my theology. But the way I look at it, where is there hope if... Oh, you know what? Jesus is going to come back, but he's going to make you go through hell on earth first. There's no hope in that. So the second coming occurs after this great and terrible tribulation. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. It's spared. We're spared as believers from God's wrath. Thirdly, the rapture is the removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. He's delivering us from the judgment to come. But the second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment. All right, they're killed, they're executed, they're taken to judgment. And so one is an act of deliverance, the second coming is an act of judgment. That's why now it's good, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to come to Him now because you can cry out to Him, Lord. Save me, be merciful to me, and he will. He will save your heart, he will save your soul, he will forgive you of your sin if you're willing to cry out to him and ask for forgiveness. But there'll be a day when it's too late, and you'll have to meet Jesus maybe not as your Savior, but as the Lord. And he will exact punishment upon your unsafe soul, which you don't want to be there. Fourthly, the rapture will be secret and instant. And by secret, I mean there's nothing that has to happen. It's imminent, we call it. There's nothing that has to happen before the rapture of the church. It could have happened in Paul's time, for all we know. And that's what Paul thought. That's why Paul communicated this to the Lord, or to the Thessalonians. You know, that, hey, this, could, this, this is going to be a t- catching away. And uh, it's, it's going to be quick. It's going to be something that you can't really plan for. It would be secret. It would be instant. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that in verses 50 to 54. But guess what? The Bible describes the second coming of Christ when he physically comes to earth as something different. It says it will be visible by all. All will see the Son of Man coming. The fifth thing is the second coming of Christ will not occur until after certain end time events take place. In other words, Jesus kind of spelled out through the Gospels and Revelation and other places that you know certain things have to happen before Christ comes back physically to earth. But guess what? Nothing has to happen before the rapture occurs. The rapture is imminent. It could happen at any moment. I mean, the only thing that will, will happen, the thing that will seal, I believe, when the rapture happens is when the last soul that was elect will be saved. We don't know when that will be, we don't know who that person is, but can you imagine being the last person in the human race to finally bow your knee to Christ and then, wow, he comes back for his church and we're going up and it's like, well, it was you, <laughs> you know, you're the holdout, right? You're the reason we had to stay down there. But see, that's why it's so pressing upon us to what? Get the gospel out. See, we can't allow our, our theology to mess with our evangelism and sometimes People who believe in election and believe in God's sovereignty, they give up on evangelism. Well, you can't. That's how God works. It may not make sense in our logical mind, but, you know, last time I checked, I don't have a list of who's elect and who's not. So what are we told to do? We're told to preach the gospel to all nations, to every soul. And the good news in that is that, you know what, as you preach the gospel to people, either they're going to come to Christ or they're not. You know, the Lord isn't going to, when you go to heaven, he's not going to pull out a piece of paper and say, okay, let's see. In your time as a Christian, you shared Christ with 20 people. I got bad news. Only one is here. So you you flunk. Get out. No. You know, that's not how to look at it. Because even if you share it with 20 people and just one comes to Christ, well, that one was elect. But we can't see that from our perspective. That's why we want to share it with everybody. And so the rapture is something that could take place at any moment. And last week, we got to the point in First Thessalonians where he was talking about, I don't want you to grieve as others grieve who have no hope. Um, the people who have no hope are described in Ephesians chapter 2. They're, they're, they're people who are separate from Christ. They're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, they're strangers of the covenant of the promise. They have no hope, and it says they're without God in this world. I mean, it's bad enough to be in the world, but can you be, can you imagine being in the world without God, without any perspective of faith? What an overwhelming situation to be in. But there's many out there who have no hope. They have no hope in life after death. They have no hope in reunion. They have no hope in resurrection. And you can see it when you go to a funeral, people who have no hope. That's why I always make it a practice. I don't care what the people say or what... The funeral director says, I'm going to preach the gospel at a funeral because I don't know who's gathered there. I'm going to do it in a tasteful way, hopefully. But they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear, you need to cry out to God. You know, you could be this person laying here. Um, None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And so the common teaching uh, of, of the people of that day in the pagan background was there was really no hope beyond life. But now Christ says, hey, wait a minute, you can have hope. You can have hope. And so this hope is called the gathering away or, or the, the, the rapture we refer it to. It's our gathering together to him. He, he brings us to himself. And so John 14 talks about it, 1 Corinthians 15, and here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we've gone over the reasons why there's not a lot of uh, uh, exact theology on this because it's called a what? It's called a mystery It's called a mystery. A mystery is something that was factual, but it was not known by anybody. And that's why the Apostle Paul says here that, hey, you know what? In verse 15, we declare this to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this is fresh stuff. Remember, 1 Thessalonians, you know, we think of our Bibles as chronological. Well, no. Uh, You know, the book of Revelation wasn't written yet. This was a long time, uh, probably, you know, one of the, the first Uh, books that was actually written. So they didn't have a lot of information. They didn't have the advantage of having 66 books in their Bible. So a lot of fresh revelation came at them at times, and Paul is saying that that's what this is. And he wanted them to know that, hey, that you know what, even though you're going through some trials and some tribulations, and they were in in Thessalonica, um, I want you to understand that, you know what, the Lord is coming back for you. I don't want you to grieve as others who have no hope. And, And since Um, you know, you have your hope and your faith in Christ, you can understand that as a pastor, Paul was very concerned for them because they were very, very troubled. Some people thought they missed it. Some people thought whatever, that what about the people that died? Did they miss it? No. And so he's writing to them as a pastor, not really a theologian, even though he was one. And so... This rapture, this idea of this rapture, down in verse 17 is where we get the idea. It says, when we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. That word caught up. Okay, see that there? Harpazo in the Greek. You know, I, I don't like the word rapture because rapture kind of, to me, it, it has too much emotion in it. Like, you know, oh, I just want to be. You know, the, 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 really, the real meaning of this word is something that's violent. It's not something that's just, you know, oh, Jesus is going to come down and just take our, oh, come on up. Okay. No, it's, it's, it's always used in scripture as something that, that happens violently. Uh, some commentators use the word snatched away. You know, that, that's a better word. The snatching away of the church. And it should give us, give us hope that, you know what, even though all this tribulation is coming, all this God's judgment is coming upon the earth, guess what? Christ promises that he will come back for his church and he will catch us away. He will rapture us. He will snatch us out of the world before all of his judgment falls. Look over at, at Matthew chapter 11. I just want to look at this word quickly. In a couple places. It's the same word. But it gives you an idea of the context. Of of how it's used in scripture. In Matthew chapter 11. We're reading. uh, About John the Baptist here. And look down at verse 12. It says. From the days of John the Baptist. Until now. The kingdom of heaven has suffered. Violence. And the violent. Take it by what? force. That's that word. Harpazo. It's something that's violent. It's not just some easy going transition from here to heaven. Or over a couple more chapters in Matthew 13 verse 19 where we read about a, the parable of the sower and the seed. 13-14 13-14 where it says, um, yeah, the parable of the, the, the sower and the seed there. And he says, it's not, it's not verse, or verse 19, I'm sorry, why did I say 14? Thirteen, nineteen. It says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, look at what it says. The evil one comes, Satan comes, and what? Snatches away. That's the word. That's the same word we call rapture. Or in John, the Gospel of John. John's preaching here in John chapter 6. It's the same word in the original text. John chapter 6, verse 15. He says, perceiving then, this is when he's feeding the 5,000, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force. That's the word. That's the word. Same word is used for rapture. And it's used in other places. It's used in John 10, 12, where he's talking about um, how he holds the sheep as the good shepherd, and then there's a hireling, not a shepherd, and the owner, and the wolf comes and leaves, uh, and he leaves the sheep and, and flees, and, and the, the, the wolf snatches the sheep, and scatters them. That's the word. Okay, so there's a lot of places where this is used. In John 10, 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I will give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. All right? So when you think of the rapture, don't think of some easygoing, you know, oh, let's hold hands and go to heaven. No, it's a snatching away. It's a violent act. That's why it's imminent. That's why the world would be so devastated. Because it's going to happen like that. You can't plan for it other than come to Christ. And so there's a couple things here I want to share about the rapture or the catching away or the snatching away. What's it built on? And this kind of relates to our communion time today. The first thing is, it's built upon, back to 1 Thessalonians 4, if you're lost. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. He says, for since we believe Jesus died, Jesus died. That's why we are celebrating here today communion, the Lord's table. Why? Because Jesus died. If he wouldn't have died, we wouldn't have had salvation. We wouldn't have had communion. We wouldn't have had a church. We wouldn't have been here. All right. Now, look at this verse a little bit, because it's important that we notice here, some of your translations might say, if we believe, and and I've talked to you before about this word if, it can also be translated since, the ESV translated since, for since we believe, because you can't be a Christian without believing that Jesus died. It's impossible. Some people say, well, do you think you have to believe Jesus is God to be a Christian? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay, there's some basic tenets of our faith, right? That you have to believe. You, you, can't, you, you can't give people grace in those areas. Um, and that's what's wrong a lot of times with the people in the church today is they want to give all this grace out about what people believe and so well, don't, don't Muslims serve the same God we do. I mean, they have faith. No, no, they don't. And neither do the Mormons and neither do the Jehovah Witnesses. And you can go on the list. Okay, and you have to be clear about that because people like to make all that area gray and everybody's going to heaven. No, everybody's not going to heaven. Jesus said very clearly, the road to heaven is very what? Narrow. Narrow. It's restrictive. It's only meant for certain people. But broad, right? Broad is the way to destruction. Not everybody's going to heaven, my friend. And the the, the difference is where is your faith? Is your faith is in the fact that Jesus died for your sins? And it's important we understand that he died a very specific death. It's based on the fact that Jesus died. It's not based on the fact that he just died for everybody. That's not the fact of salvation. The fact is, when he hung on the cross, he died for you. If you're a believer here today, he died for me. He died for all who would put their faith, their trust in Christ. And people have problems with that. They say, well, you don't believe Jesus died for everybody? There's verses. Well, when you look at those verses, and we don't have time this morning, but when you study out those verses, you understand what the author's saying. Because he can't be saying Jesus paid the penalty of everybody's sin. Everybody's sins are paid for. Well, who's going to heaven? Everybody? Why not? Their sins are paid for if you believe that theology. See the problem? You, You get yourself in a corner real quick. No, Jesus died a very specific death. He died for you, He died for me, He died for the elect, He died for the church, He died for those who would put their faith, their trust in Christ. He paid the penalty for what? The penalty for our sins. And so, if you're going to believe in the snatching away of the church or the gathering of the church, the rapture, you have to start there. You have to believe. If you're going to be included in that, you have to start with, you know what? Christ died for me. He did something sacrificial on my behalf that I couldn't do for myself. I talked to one person one time and they said, well, I'm just going to die for myself. Go ahead. It's not going to help you, pal. You're not a perfect sacrifice. What makes you think you're so special? You're imperfect. You're a sinner just like everybody else. You're the one that needs saving. We all need saving. We're all in the pool drowning. We need that lifeguard that's going to stretch out his hand and, and, and grasp us. As we take our last breath, that's what the Lord does. That's what we're saved. That's what that means. We're saved from something. We're saved from the penalty of our sin. And he paid that penalty on Calvary. And it wasn't so much the the physical aspect of his suffering, which was great. We think of that and we read about that in the Gospels and you watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ and while you're, you weep and you feel, you feel sorry for Jesus, don't feel sorry for Jesus. If he didn't go through that, guess what? We wouldn't be saved. It'd be impossible for us to be saved. And he welcomed every, every bit of it. He went there willingly. Nobody drug him to the cross. He went there willingly, and he knew what was going to be involved physically. That's why in his physical nature as a human being, because he was God, but he was also human, in the garden, what did he pray? Lord, if there's any other way, Father, maybe you got something you didn't share with me yet, you know, but if there's any other way, you know, if this cup of wrath and, and your vengeance upon the sin of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in me could be passed from me and not, I don't have to go through this process, if there's any other way, let me know. But what? Not my will, right? He was God, but he was also human. His human flesh was not looking forward to what he knew was going to happen. It's kind of like when you are scheduled for an operation and you go on the internet and you watch the operation, not a good idea. (laughs) That's just not a good idea, right? Because then you know what's coming. It's like, oh, my goodness. If you don't know what's coming, they just knock you out. You wake up, you're fine. Maybe watch it afterwards or something. But, you know, um, for those of you that are queasy, you don't want to do that. That would be the worst thing to possibly do. And so Christ knew. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew who was going to spit in his face. He knew who was going to pull out his beard. He knew who was going to th- thrust those uh, thorns down upon his brow into his skull. He knew all that, but he still went. So when Paul says, since we believe, he's just not talking about one little event in Jesus' life. Just believe in the martyr Jesus. No, he's talking about the atonement that Christ secured on our behalf, that he satisfied, that he was able to make a sacrifice that the father said, this is it. No more sacrifices after this one. I am completely satisfied with the sacrifice of my own son for your sins. What a wonderful thing. Because if we're not acceptable to God, he's not going to come back and gather us to himself. It's only those who put their faith, or trust in Christ. And it's done through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And you notice that he doesn't refer here. You might be sitting there going, well, I thought you said earlier last week that whenever we're talking about Christians dying, it always talks about them sleeping. Right? Well, why doesn't it say, well, Jesus went to sleep? Because he didn't. (laughs) he died a death we could never die. That's that's the the real story. And death, in his death, he felt the full fury of the father's wrath, so much so the father had to what? Turn away. We can't understand that. They're all God, they're all holy, they're all part of a trinity, and yet for a moment in time, Jesus took upon himself, even though he was completely perfect, a perfect sacrifice, it was laid upon him all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him for salvation. At one time, in one moment of time. I mean, sometimes if you're dealing with pain, you know, if it's progressive, you know, you can kind of deal with it, right? I mean, you can, but boy, when you're inflicted, when your body's inflicted with Pain at a level 10 all at once, all over your body. I can't imagine that. Well, think of that spiritually for Christ. What the horrible, horrible experience it was for him on the cross. That's why. He bore the full brunt of God's fury on our behalf, he bore in his body, the Bible says, our sins. Why did he do that? Why did he have to go through that kind of death? He did that so that he could transform death for us into something like sleep. Because it was through Christ's resurrection, right, that his, in his death, that death has been changed to sleep by the death of Christ, you could say. He paid for our sins. He made death sleep for believers. And you say, "Well, what did he pay?" He paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. And if the wages are paid, then guess what? We no longer have to face death. We no longer have to face death the way Jesus faced death, we can say, hey, you know what? This is just a temporary thing. This is just a transition. This is just my promotion to heaven. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, the sting of death is what? Is sin. And guess what? He, he, he took it away. You know, you know if you get stung by a bee... You can't usually get stung by the same bee twice, I don't think. I think they leave their stinger in you, and then the bee, the bee dies, right? Well, it's a similar thing with Christ. He took the sting of death for us, and so we don't have to face that sting any longer. We can say, you know what? Yeah, so-and-so is no longer with us, but he's alive in Christ. He's in the presence of their Lord and Savior. They're, they're waiting. They're, they're waiting this great event Your spirit, when you die as a Christian, goes immediately to be with the Lord. Your body goes to the grave until this time of the rapture. And that's why it says the dead in Christ will be raised first. Why? Because your physical body is important. It's something God created. You say, well, what if it was burned up? Look, God created it, right? People say, well, what if we buried it? See, hey, God knows where it's at, He can put it all back together. You know, and that's exactly what he's going to do. But it's going to be a glorified body at that point. And it's going to be reunited with your soul. And you can do a study on the glorified body of Christ and see, I mean, he ate food. That's a good thing. <laughs> right? I mean, we've got to look forward to that. People recognized him. That's a good thing. So in heaven, there, it's going to be different. But that's the, really the, the first pillar there is that the hope that's provided through the rapture, is because we've, we've entered into the death of Christ. We believe in the death of Christ. But verse 14 says, and what? Rose again, and rose again. When Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father, basically it was Jesus saying, okay, yep, the check cashed. It didn't bounce. It's good. We're good to go. We got the, we got the funds in the account, you know, you always get nervous sometimes when you sell something, especially now. You know, a lot of times it's just digitally, but when people used to write checks, you'd wonder, okay, I wonder if this check's good. And if it's a big amount, you can actually call the bank and say, hey, I just want to make sure this guy's writing this amount, right? And the bank would tell you, oh, no, they're good for it. But you don't take that check and just kind of throw it around your house for a couple weeks. What do you do? You go to the bank right away, right? If you sell somebody a car for $10,000, you take that. That rate right to the bank. Nowadays, you just take a picture of it and deposit it right away in your account. It's amazing. But you want that to make sure that you're just not holding a kind of a defunct piece of paper written as a check. And, and this is what the resurrection of Christ did. And that's why Paul says here For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and rose again. You know, the, without the resurrection of Christ, the death wouldn't mean anything. The death would mean he's just another Jesus that died. Big deal. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a lot of people that died. There was a lot of people that died like Jesus died. Uh, as far as crucifixion goes. He wasn't the only one. He was, died, he was, he was crucified amongst two other people who died in similar fashion. And so it's important to realize that, you know what, just because he died, that's one aspect of it. But the second aspect of it is believing that he rose again from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15.23 says that Christ is the the first fruits, and and afterwards then then Christ is coming and all that stuff. And it explains all that. Um, Hebrews 13.20, God raised him up. God will raise us up also. That's where the hope comes from. That's why when you, when you face death, you don't have to face it as something fearful. You can say, hey, I, I'm not looking forward to it, right? Because you have loved ones here on earth, you want to, whatever. You have certain attachments to God's creation while you're here on earth, and you, know, you don't want to just leave prematurely. But at the same time, when you understand biblically that you're moving on to something so, so much greater, and in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, you could be with the Lord, or when you die, your soul goes to be with the Lord immediately, absent from the body, present with the Lord. All the, thi- all the things you worry about on a daily basis, you know, how much gas is going to be, how much is going to fill my tank, oh, do I got to work, what's my schedule going to be, you know, all the grandkids, the kids, you know, all this stuff, all the politics. I mean, you could make a list a mile long of things to worry about all day long, 24-7. But guess what? In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and that just means the, the time it takes light to refract off your lens. It's not even the blinking of an eye. I mean, you're talking about a very, 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 very small portion of time. That's all removed from you. All those burdens. And you're in the presence of your Lord and Savior. It's just amazing. Because you believe that he raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6.14 gives us more hope. It says, God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. What a glorious thing that one day our physical body will be raised from the dead. I mean, it'd be just a cool thing to watch. But we're going to be part of it, right? I mean, we're not just going to be watching. We're going to actually experience it. And so uh, that's the, the, the hope there, gathering together. And I think it's, it's important that we, we understand that and, and we realize that. And that's why Jesus can say, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. It's all going to work out. I've already written it all down. I'm going to prepare a place. I'm coming back for you. You're going to be caught up, taken away. And even if you die before I come back, you're still going to be raised. Matter of fact, you're going to be raised first. So we don't need to worry about those kind of things. And then finally, he says here, because of this, since you believe in the death and you believe that Jesus rose, even so, through Jesus, and here's his promise God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's pretty clear. Pretty clear. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this is some new information, Thessalonians, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we'll look into the order of the rapture and how this will take place. But I just thought it was important to understand the difference between the, the rapture, or the catching away, of, the snatching away of the church, and the second coming of Christ. And these three pillars that we can believe in that, you know what, um, we understand that it's the death of Christ, it's the, it's the fact that he rose from uh, the grave, and that's, why, that's where our hope comes from, and he will return for us. Um, as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, I want to read a section out of Hebrews for us. Hebrews chapter 9 and if you look at verse 11 just as we prepare our hearts for our communion time and, and by the way this, this communion time is a, it's an open communion time and by that I mean you don't have to be a member of this church to take partake of the elements when they're passed around um, we'll pass out the cracker first and then we'll pray and take that and then the juice um, so you can wait till everybody has it before you partake but Um, the the, kind of line we draw around the communion table it's for believers it's for those who put their faith or trust in Christ so if you're not a believer here today if you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ yet I, I would say probably just let the elements pass I don't want you to think that somehow by taking this bread and eating it somehow that's salvation that's not Okay, these are just symbols of our salvation Okay, this, this is what it means when, when we come to Christ and we understand that the death, Christ died in his physical body, and we take that bread, we're remembering that because it's very personal to us. So if you're not a believer here today, you, you know, you could just pass those elements by. Um, but it's for believers. And it's also for believers, it tells us in Scripture that we should examine our hearts, we should examine our lives before we partake of communion. Because this is a time where it's, it's kind of, you're not reflecting on your neighbor or your spouse. You're reflecting on your own heart, on your own soul. And you're, you're kind of checking in with the Lord. And you're saying, okay, is everything, is everything good here? You know, and if it's not, you know what? In a moment, um, you know, there's a time we sing a song or whatever. Just go to the Lord and confess whatever's on your heart that maybe you're holding out. You know, that's why the Bible says if we, if we confess or since we, for, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, forgive us our sins. And what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we want to come to this table in an honorable way, and and one way to do that is examining our own hearts. But in Hebrews chapter 9, he says in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered, look at this, once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus, I love this, securing an eternal redemption. Do you ever get those coupons in the mail? And say, hey, you know, you got to turn this in. And it has a little date. <laughs> and you go in and they're like, I'm sorry, Aunt you're past the date. That's never going to happen with our salvation. We're, we're eternally redeemed. What a, what a wonderful thing. We don't have to worry about that. And he says in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, persons with the ashes of a heifer, these are all things they did in the Old Testament leading up to Christ's sacrifice, sanctified for purification of the flesh, how much, more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, and this is the key, offered himself. Nobody made him do it. He offered himself. Without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, verse 15, he is the mediator. He's the go-between. He's the guy that's kind of got our back of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. This is why the death of Christ was so essential. Since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when Every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used for worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, what? There is no forgiveness of sin. You know, and you say, well, that sounds like a bloody religion to me. Well, thank God. Thank God it's not our blood. <laughs> right? It's Christ's blood. And it's, it's so important that we understand that. And down in verse 27 uh, or verse uh, 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 verse twenty five. It says, "Nor was it offered himself repeatedly." Verse twenty four. For Christ has entered into the holy place made with the hands, which are the copies of true things, but in heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And it says, "Nor was it offered; nor was it to offer himself repeatedly." And as Christ died once, he didn't have to die over and over and over again, as the Catholic Church would have you to believe. Uh, he died once, and it says there that uh, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, take the sting out of death, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for man, once to die, and after that comes the judgment. I never thought of the blessing of that verse. I'm glad you just got to die once. I kind of feel sorry for some of the guys in the Old Testament that died, and then God resurrected them, you know? And they came back, Jesus resurrected, and they got to die again. They still had to die. They didn't live forever, right? I mean, how would you like to go through that process twice? I don't think so, but I mean, it'd be kind of neat to be resurrected, but... And so it says, it's pointed out a man wants to die, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, not all, many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Father, we pray this morning that as we prepare our hearts to a song and then the passing around of the elements and partaking together as communion, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Father, I pray that this wouldn't just be some rote thing we do once a a month, on the first Sunday of the month, go through the communion thing. But Lord, that you would bring a freshness to it, to our own hearts and our own souls. And Lord, that we would be able to understand uh, the truth of, of what is, we're about to enter into here. And Lord, we know that these are just symbols of your body and of your blood. They don't become the body of Christ. They don't become the blood of Christ. I don't do some hocus-pocus thing here and turn it into that as some would have you to believe. They're just elements. They're just, it's just a, a, a cracker and, a, and a, some juice. But it represents... The full atonement, it represents the death of Christ and his blood. The body of of Christ and his blood. And Lord, we just thank you that he was willing to offer himself for our sins. And so we pray that you would just uh, help us examine our own hearts as we uh, sing the words of this song and then as the elements are passed, Lord, that you would just uh, bless our time here today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.